Back in January, Damien from the most excellent Turned Out a Punk podcast tweeted these bold words, No label in the world has put out as many great records as Flying Nun. That sounds a bit reckless, right? But when you think of all the great music the New Zealand label has released, The Clean, The Gordons, Look Blue Go Purple, Tall Dwarfs, The Bats, suddenly Flying Nun's achievement seems pretty singular. It's now 2021, which makes it 40 years since the label began. I thought it was the perfect time to chat up Richard Langston. Richard put out Garage Fanzine in the mid-80s. It was everything a music fanzine should be. Obsessive, playful, literate, and gone too soon. It was fanatical in its almost exclusive coverage of the Dunedin sound. It functioned almost like a de facto in-house mag for Flying Nun. Richard still lives in New Zealand, where he works as a TV journalist. He's also a published poet, and that's where our conversation began. I want to say congratulations first. You've just recently published your sixth collection of poetry, which is called yeah. Five O'Clock Shadows. Can you tell me a bit about Thank it? Thank you. Um, well, yeah, it's my sixth book. Poetry is just something I've written since I was in my 20s. Um, I was a journalist. I started on a newspaper when I was um, 17 uh, as a reporter. I did the shipping news. And... Um, I progressed through to poetry because I stumbled on a book, um, The Penguin Collection of American Poetry, it, when I was about 21 or two, and I, I just it just really struck me. People were doing things with words that I'd never really seen done. It was just an exciting discovery, and then I discovered um, and started reading more of New Zealand poets, and and so I just kept going from there. I really enjoyed writing it, even though it was difficult. Um, I enjoyed that element of writing. I mean, when I started writing on a newspaper, I was pretty awful, to be honest. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was not a good writer. I was not a natural writer. I didn't feel I was anyway, but I just worked at it, worked harder, and I, I noticed what other journalists were doing with words and how to become more effective. And, and I guess I just kept going, and then I got obsessed with certain bands and, and music. And again, lyrics became something I really no, noticed and um, focused on. And I guess all that fed into the idea that I could express myself by using poetry. Did writing poetry and practicing poetry make you a better writer in general? Did it help improve your journalism as well? I've no doubt. I worked in newspapers and, and radio and magazines. And then i worked in television. I've worked in television for 25 years or so. And I think poetry really helped me be a better script writer because it made my writing leaner. I made the, I really made the words count. And I, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd taken notice of people like Hemingway who, who, who didn't use adjectives at all. And so when you're writing television scripts, that's very much the way you want to write because the pictures are doing the work for you. So you don't need to describe, but you need to be aware of what it is you need to say and say it as succinctly as possible. So poetry was great for that. I understand your Lebanese heritage also figures importantly in Five O'Clock Shadows. Yeah, it does actually, because I guess you become aware of who you are more and more as your life goes on. I mean, I suppose when you're 20, you sort of want to blend in. You don't want to maybe accentuate your differences in a country, you know, in like New Zealand, um, which was pretty sort of white, obviously, apart from the indigenous people. The predominant people were sort of English and Scottish. But, you know, my, my Lebanese forebears came here in a tiny communities in the late 19th century. They left Lebanon, went to Australia, and of course they went to North America as well. And they came through Australia and some of them came to New Zealand. And that's my lineage. They came here and they farmed, they were tinkers, they went into commerce and they've been very successful. They're now a pretty well-established professional class in New Zealand. You know, they started out as tinkers and <laughs> with horse and carriage and traveling through the country and selling needle and thread and material and cloth in um, inland Otago, which was the province where my forebears went. They went to Dunedin, the land of Port Chalmers. So, yeah, so that was pretty, pretty exotic to be here, you know, to be of Lebanese descent here was, was unusual and maybe something that outside my community I didn't accentuate too much. But over time... You know, of course, you realise who you are. What do they say? Your one job in life is to 
to realise who you are and what you are. Um, and I think that's why it figures more in my poetry now. It's always been there slightly, Armin, but it's probably more overt now. Mm-hmm. My mum's from Beirut. Oh, I imagine okay. there's probably some overlap in our experiences growing up. Certainly cuisine. Was that a big part of Oh, your, yeah, youth it Richard? was. It was. Now, here's a strange thing. So it was my father's side of the family that was Lebanese. My mother is, was English. Hmm. But she became a fantastic cook of Lebanese food, of machshi, you know, the cabbage rolls, rolled with mince and rice. And, oh, yeah. And kibbe. Um, so, yes, that, that all that food did feature. But, of course, and my father always ate olives, uh, which was not common <laughs> in New Zealand. And, um, yeah, so, so yes, that, that did feature. And that was really important. And it was it certainly helped define who we were by what we ate, you know. Did you grow up speaking any Arabic, Richard? No. Now, that's, a, that's another interesting thing. I remember when I was a kid growing up, there was talk that they would teach us um, Arabic, you know. I think because they were quite conservative and very keen to assimilate, they decided that, no, we would learn English. And that was a conscious decision because I can remember distinctly that they talked about lessons and whether this would help in Arabic, and they decided not to do that. And nowadays, Arabic, looking at it pragmatically, is probably one of the more useful languages you can have. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, of course, like any language. I, well, I would, in New Zealand, you know, two official, there's three official languages, um, English and Maori um, and sign language. So the indigenous language here has become really important. Māori suffered terribly in this country. You know, they weren't allowed to speak at school. They were sometimes punished for speaking their own language. Well, that's turned around 360 degrees now, and Māori is encouraged, and all the Pākehā European people are encouraged to speak it as well. The aim is to have a million Māori speakers by you know within a, within a couple of decades probably a bit uh, fanciful but you know that's the, that's the notion arabic would be i mean you know because this the population here is so small in new zealand it's it's difficult to see its its importance you know obviously in the rest of the world extremely important but here sometimes we are isolated and removed i wonder what sort of role did music play in your youth well it, very important I was lucky when I, the first job I got on the evening newspaper, my first editor, well, actually, this was in the sports department, strangely enough, but he was a very influential music writer, and there was a local scene starting to evolve, and he would write about it and talk to me about it, and so, you know, I was discovering music myself, you know, the Beach Boys and so forth, and um, and the Raspberries and all that kind of pop music, and then this guy, Roy Colbert, who he's written a lot about flying nun bands, which would emerge in the in the coming decades, you know, from the time I was 17. They, they started to happen at that time. And Roy really uh, gave me an education, as he gave many of those musicians who would uh, form those bands and become a part of it. Because Roy had an immense knowledge of 60s music, and particularly garage music, you know, nuggets, all that sort of the psychedelic stuff and uh, garage music. And so that was a huge influence on all of us as we started to discover how meaningful and how (laughs) important music could become to you. And were you writing about music as a journalist, Richard, at the time? No, not not at that time, Armin. I, I didn't feel at all confident about writing about music. I mean, I was learning to write about what I knew at that point, which was probably sport, and I felt comfortable trying to report that, whereas music, I, I, I didn't feel I knew enough. I didn't, so I didn't know, not initially. I had sort of four or five years working as a general reporter, discovering the world and finding out how the world works before I started to even think about writing about music. And I really sort of stumbled into writing about music by accident. When I was in London, working as a freelance journalist, I just suddenly met bands. And I, I, I had, by that point, become very interested in music. And I decided to work as a freelance music journalist. And that brought me in touch with a lot of bands, a lot of albums, you know, and then you started talking to people and learning more. And, but it was in London. 
where that happened, you know. And then I came back to New Zealand and uh, well, I came back to New Zealand because the music I thought here was more exciting than the bands I was seeing in London. Apart from, of course, you know, like the big international acts like the Cramps and so forth. I, I loved all that stuff. And But, uh, you know, the London scene itself, which would later evolve into the creation label, I thought they were interesting and quite good, but I thought the New Zealand bands, the Dunedin bands that were evolving were better. I was getting records in the mail from New Zealand and I thought they were better than the bands I was seeing in London. So eventually that's why I sort of went home. So I want to talk a lot about Flying Nun. Um, mm. But maybe before that, I want to ask about maybe the roots of the Flying Nun scene. Bands like The Enemy and Victor Dimisic Band, where do yeah. they fit in? Well, The Enemy were kind of, in Dunedin, they were kind of ground zero of everything. Chris Knox was mm-hmm. in The Enemy with Mike Dooley and Alec Bathgate. And, and they are three names you'll see throughout the sort of... The Enemy became Toy Love um, later on, but The Enemy were... They started the scene in Dunedin. Fundamentally, they started all the bands that would follow, including the Clean, you know, the Villains, Blue Go Purple, and all the bands that would follow the Double Happies. And so that they were monumental in Dunedin. Chris Knox was a force. He had lived in Invercargill in the city south of Dunedin. He travelled up, started living in Dunedin, found some fellow travellers and they formed the enemy and that was you know a monumental happening in in the town pretty much the way the sex pistols was for the british that was what they were to us in dunedin uh, victor de message band they were from christchurch and christchurch had its own thing it was slightly different probably a bit darker mm-hmm. um, a velvet underground thing going on from the i mean so did the enemy had the velvet underground a, a huge signpost for both all the Dunedin and Christchurch bands. But, but maybe um, different elements of the Velvet Underground. There's the darker kind yeah. of element of the Velvet Underground, and there's that more birdsy, chimey uh, yeah. pop element yeah. as well. Uh, I think the Victor Demisic band and the Pin Group and those Christchurch bands were, were more more somber. You know, Dunedin always had a pop element to mm-hmm. it. always had a bit of um, a melody to you know the to the to equal the dissonance and so did the Christchurch bands but to a lesser degree they were I think they're, they're sort of darker <laughs> probably a darker humor too bands like Scorched Earth Policy who followed <laughs> Victor de Message band they you know they these are fabulous garage bands you know and they've all taken a cue from the Velvets and and from Nuggets and that was kind of where they were coming from. So your first exposure to some of these flying nun bands, Richard, was would that have happened while you were in London then, when you're hearing about no, Verlaine's no, and the no, Clean? No, no, no. Oh, the, my first exposure to to them, I see. I was a I missed out on the the enemy. They were kind of 77, 78. and by the time I saw them, they had evolved into Toy Love. But my one of my first experiences was was seeing the Clean in Dunedin, and so I would have been only eighteen or nineteen when I saw them. So they made a huge influence, even though they were not particularly popular or well-received when they first started up. And in fact, you know, one of their first times playing in a pub, they the, the manager pulled the plug on them. He thought they were so awful. But, you know, it was a very conservative town, Denise. So this whole punk rock, the evolution of the clean and so forth, wasn't as well-received as you might think. But they, people didn't like them, you know, because they were used to covers and pub bands and you know, pretty mainstream stuff. And suddenly there was this racket evolving and it, it repelled a lot of people, but also attracted a small army of converts who, who loved it. And, and the clean got rapidly got better uh, and became very successful in a short period of time. And they were fantastic to see live. One of the best gigs I've ever seen, Armin, was before I went to London, was the clean playing a double bill with the tall dwarfs which was just astonishing i've never forgotten that gig that they had the clean were fantastic tall dwarfs were was their pretty early days of alec bathgate and chris knox discovering what they could do as a two-piece and it was they were just brilliant and by the time i got back here you know other bands had evolved it was really exciting so this is probably 83 84 85, 86, I started a fanzine called Garage. I'd seen fanzines in London. I'd like the idea that they, you know, they were just so cheaply produced and photocopied and and you could read people <laughs> raving about bands they believed were fantastic. So 
I sort of did the same thing in Dunedin when I got back. I started this fanzine and I did the first issue, not wondering whether there'd ever be a second. And then I did the second, wondering if there'd be a third. And I kept going for six issues over, I think, three years. And it, it attracted a lot of other people, writers and poets, actually, who, who sent poetry. And it, it was really a, an amazing time in Dunedin, those years, you know, mid-80s. It really took off. A whole uh, second sort of echelon of bands followed from uh, The Enemy and The Clean. Look Blue Go Purple, The Double Happies. I mean, The Chills, of course. The Chills had gone. I'd seen The Chills before I left for London. I'd seen them in Auckland, and they were terrific. They were just starting to evolve, but so good, such good songs. Martin was writing even as a 17, 16, 17-year-old. By the time I got back to Dunedin, the Chills were just, you know, a fabulous band to see live. So many good songs. And there were um, hopes that it seemed like they were going to make it. If any band from that scene maybe were going to make it, they were bound yeah. for London. And Flying Nun thought the Chills were, were the best bet to make it, as such as that is. Um, some of the bands were just not interested in making it, to be honest. The Clean were never interested in making it. They had a taste of success and didn't really like it. To them, it was always about making the music. It wasn't about being a successful mainstream rock band. It, it was never about that for them. They always pursued their own course. They never were interested in um, in becoming uh, a commercial proposition. They just wanted to make music. I think that the chills were the, the chills were more ambitious in that they did want conventional success. I think Martin Phillips did want to be successful in, the, in a commercial sense. I mean, that, that kind of didn't work out for them because it takes something extra. It takes a lot of luck, too, to break through. And it's not necessarily mm-hmm. about talent. You know, talent talents often doesn't quite make it through. It's, it's not enough. Timing, all sorts of weird things. That, that kind of burnt Martin out that he didn't, make it in a commercial sense but he's recovered from that now and he's continuing and the chills continue to make really good music and and that's the great thing that martin has survived there's a there's a documentary i'm not sure if you've seen it the triumph and tragedy of the martin phillips you know i read about it but i haven't watched it yet but i know yeah he had a rough few years there for sure didn't he? oh yeah 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 i mean he had drug addiction he's been very open about that he got very ill as a result of it. He got hepatitis C, but he, he is better these days and he's mentally much better. And yeah, I just saw him the other week actually, and he, he's good. He's in great spirits. He's writing. They're about the chills are about to put out a new album. So, oh, amazing. That's that's lovely to yeah. hear. Yeah, Martin's done really well. He's since come his sort of comeback. He's written two successful albums, and he's a bit, and they're about to release a third, and they're going to tour here soon. Yeah, it's great. He's recovered. He's a really great person, a really lovely guy, and a terrific songwriter. And it's hard when people when people get burned out because they have a belief that good songs and talent will get you through. Well, sometimes. <laughs> It doesn't take you as far as you you might think it will. The Straight Jacket Fits were another band too here. That one of the bands when I came back in the mid eighties that was just evolving was the Double Happies. Mm-hmm. This is Shane Carter and Wayne Elsey. Tragically, Wayne Elsey was killed when he was just twenty something in a terrible train accident. Oh, awful, awful business. Shane recovered from that and um, formed another band called Straight Jacket Fits. And again. They were seen as a commercial prospect. And, you know, at, that, at the time, they sort of blew Jesus and Mary Chain off the stage at various live gigs. And, you know, they had a real reputation. But again, they didn't quite break through into that next realm. But again, Shane's gone on to make fantastic music with a band called Dimmer. So all those people who flourished, who started their careers in the mid-80s in Dunedin, they've gone on to, to write lots of music and have and be creatively very successful and the reputation of, of those bands is it continues to reverberate you know much in the way of the you know of their heroes the velvet underground and all those 60s garage bands those things don't go out of fashion the flying nun back catalog is so rich and there's very few labels out there that could compete with flying nuns track record it seems yeah, well, well, it, well, it is. It's been impressive over a long period of time. Many labels start up and they have a burst of success. I mean, well, they 
release, you know, some great records. In fact, I've just been looking this morning at Ork Records, O-R-K, who put out Little Johnny Jewel by television and so forth. You know, they had a, a rich period that went, well, that, was, you know, released fantastic bands. But Flying Nuns had that period of releasing, you know, an incredible idiosyncratic and rich catalogue of uh, music. And it sort of continued to do that. Probably less <laughs> radical now and more, maybe not as off beam as some of it was, but still putting out pretty good music, you know, pretty interesting stuff. But the back catalogue is where the the riches for many people lie, you know, like there's Belter Space has just been re-released there, 95 album Whammo. So the re-releases are attracting a lot of attention too. You know, the Gordons were an incredible band out of Christchurch. Well, they were out of Ashburton, actually. And I mean, their records, I mean, Sonic Youth named, you know, name checked them years ago as just as a one-off, as just a sonic <laughs> experiment with great songs. You know, the Gordons are fabulous and fabulous to see live, just incredible. And I think also just point up to the the variety of bands on Flying Nun. I think it's sometimes easy to just dismiss Flying Nun as, you know, New Zealand's answer to R.E.M. with a bit more of a punk edge. But there's a lot more variety than people give it credit for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's experimental stuff like Marie and the Atom, which is probably not that well known, but there were art records put out on Flying Nun. I mean, uh, this this kind of punishment um, was distributed by Flying Nun. They... There's a lot more experimental stuff. The first two, I think, this kind of punishment records um, were distributed by Flying Nun because Chris Knox was a fan. So Chris Knox had quite an influence in who the label, what the bands the label would support and release. I mean, Roger Shepard, the label founder, was obviously, he, he, had, he has great ears as well. And they, between them, you know, they put out a slew of impressive stuff. But it was just that rich punk period, Armin, post-punk period, where a lot of people who might not have been attracted to music had been by punk, and now they were actually getting better at what they did. The post-punk period here was was good. You know, people like this kind of punishment evolved out of a band called Nocturnal Projections, who were more straightforward. Who are also great. They've been reissued a few years ago. Yeah, so that yeah. they get, so all this stuff and but and you know there's another figure in the middle of all this is um, Bill Doreen, who was uh, oh yeah in the, build, the builders and his records are being released you know re released thirty years later. Are you aware of Snapper? No, Snapper were fantastic. They were another band that could have made it. They were very much influenced. Well, you if you hear they were very much kind of into drone and suicide. They kind of, they made a hell of a wonderful melodic dissonant racket. And the chief songwriter was Peter Gutteridge. And he was, he had been in the chills. He was in the clean. And then, but he really found his his sound with, with Snapper. And they put out an EP on Flying Nun. And I think by the time they released an album, it kind of didn't work out for Peter in a way. Snapper should have been huge. They were fantastic. You know, wooden ships and bands like that. They would, Snapper sounded like that 20, 25 years ago, you know. Wow. And I really recommend Snapper um, Shotgun Blossom is the album they put out. I think it came out on Avalanche Records out of Scotland in the end. I'm not sure how that happened. Sure. Oh, it came out. I think it. I'm not, I think it came out of Flying Nun too. I'm not sure to be honest. But he also put out. Peter put out a double solo record called Pure, P-U-R-E, hmm. it, it, and that was originally a cassette release on Expressway Records. And that is just a fantastic document of Peter's talent. There's great songs. There's also bits. It's experimental, lovely little tunes and drones and bits and pieces. That is a real find. So I recommend, you know, everybody have a listen to Snapper and to Peter Gutteridge's Pure Record because there's everything you like about Flying Nun is embodied in those records and those tapes and cassettes and songs. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't get any better, honestly. Peter was, he was a one-off. He was a troubled figure, but he was a, a singular talent. Were these bands approachable when you wanted to write about them for Garage? Oh, yeah. They were, yeah, they were incredibly, I mean, I was always enthusiastic. That You know, what I lacked in music knowledge and formal training about music, I made up for, I think, 
and enthusiasm <laughs> and curiosity. I was curious about how they went about doing what they did. So I, I, I think in Garage 6 or 5, there's an interview with Peter Gutteridge. I finally got to interview Peter. I wish I, and I'm glad I did, I wish I'd interviewed him a couple more times because he was really an, an interesting person and I really had a lot of respect for him. It's kind of cool though, um, and because I'm still talking to, to a lot of those people. I've in, like I've interviewed David Kilgour with Hamish Kilgour, the, the, you know, the brothers who were in the clean. I'm still interviewing those people for for websites, and so I still retain that interest. Another band that that were really good that maybe flew under the radar a bit were, were King Loser. King Loser put out two studio albums and a live album, I think, and they are they are terrific records. Raucous Chris Hazelwood, who I interviewed recently about his career because there's a documentary coming out on King Loser. I mean, they're pretty wild people. <laughs> yeah. So that also, there were so many talents who, who came out of the woodwork. Like David Mitchell was another guy who's just wrote thoroughly memorable songs. He, his band, The 3Ds, made waves in the 90s, late 80s, 90s. They were fantastic. Kind of had a Gaelic swagger about them and a punk intensity, but also this folky element to them. His first band was called Goblin Mix. And they were actually an Auckland band, but David obviously felt some affinity with what was happening in Dunedin, and he travelled down to Dunedin, started making music, and eventually evolved into the 3Ds with some Dunedin musicians and an Auckland musician. Yeah, there was a migration of Auckland bands at one point down to Dunedin because they identified with what was happening in Dunedin. There's another band called Bird Nest Roys, who were fun yes. live. Great band, and uh, their records probably don't do them justice. But I still like them a lot. But live, they were just fantastic. And that was a very, so, you know, that, again, that's a pretty, pretty cool period of activity in the, in the mid-80s in Dunedin. What was your relationship like with Roger from Flying Nun? He must have been ecstatic about having this kind of oh, coverage. Yeah. Well, funny, I was just talking to Roger <laughs> earlier this week because he came around, he, he borrowed my copies of Garage because he's writing a book on uh, the first 10 years of flying unreleases and he kind of he wasn't in Dunedin the way I was he was in Christchurch at that time he kind of came to talk to me about what it was like in Dunedin to you know be on the ground and we just had a chat about the, the bands you know the Christchurch scene was what really had initially got him going you know the pin group who probably not that widely known but kind of those who know them love them and they They're again great. have been re-released by various North American labels, Silk Breeze, I think. Roger was excited initially by that Builderine, that Christchurch Builders pin group, and then then the Clean. I mean, he saw the enemy too, so clearly he knew Roy Colbert, who was my first boss. I was telling you about when I was a sports reporter, who was also a music critic and a real fan. There was talk between Roy and Roger about what was happening in Dunedin, and Roger. Well, he knew Chris Knox. And so he said he'd been so enthused about the music that he thought he should start a record label. And then he said, I'd, he'd said it so many times, he said, well, I had to do it because, <laughs> you know, I finally had to do it because I had talked about it so much that someone should be recording these bands. And it was simple. It was as simple as that, that Flying Nun was formed to basically document what was happening, what was evolving. And then... You know, because they became, they got a reputation, a lot more people were attracted, musicians were attracted to Flying Nun and it kept expanding and, 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 the, rep and, the, and the range of bands became broader because, you know, not everybody was in Dunedin and into the Velvet Underground and, and the birds and so forth. You know, there were wider tastes than that. I imagine a lot of local bands would have killed to be on Flying Nun after those first couple of years. That would have been their ambition. Yeah, I mean, there was Flying Nun and there was Propeller Records, Ripper Records. There were a few other labels who, who put out some, some great stuff as well at, at, at that time. But I think it's fair to say that it's Flying Nun had the roster that ensured that the reputation of the label would continue to grow it, because it had a few bands who had longevity in them, who kept making music, whereas, you know, the other labels had bands that, went for two or three years, made some great singles and then sort of faded away. Flying Nun has had a roster of bands who just kept evolving and going, you know, the, notably The Clean, 
Chris Knox, the Bats, Chills, yep. the Verlaines, Sneaky Feelings to a lesser degree. They've been a bit more spasmodic in their output. But they, again, you know, they made a, a really terrific record in the mid-1980s called Send You, which was their debut album, and I still love that record. They were not worshippers at the at the altar of the Velvet Underground. They had they were more sort of beetly, soulful undercurrents. They wanted to make it. They were not frightened to sound more mainstream than the other bands. They wanted a bigger sound, and that's what they went for in the end. They, they certainly wanted a bigger studio sound, whereas the Clean were always happy, happier with a more low low key, low fi if you want to call it that, sound, you know, where, and the same with some of the other bands. But Sneaky Feelings certainly were not afraid of sounding like a, a mainstream band. Yeah, so, the, so that's why I think Flying Nun has continued to maybe its reputations, you know, just slowly, incrementally expanded because it's had these bands who have had longevity and who have been committed. Bill Doreen is still making music as well. Yes, I, I still it's see Bill Doreen interviews in American mags. Yeah, there's a fantastic documentary. It's called Memory of Others. Yeah, and, and on Bill's career, and it's great. And it, a compilation of Bill's music came out as a result of that documentary chosen by the director, and it's really good because it includes very early builder stuff and latter stuff. Bill's written some really terrific records in the last few years as well. He, he continues to. I, I, you know, I still go and see him live, and he's, he's always inventive. He's always good. He's got so many elements to his music. You know, garage, theatricality. He's a very theatrical figure, Bill, a very sort of very engaging performer. Chris Knox had a bit of that himself, right? He he was oh, a bit yeah. he was a bit over yeah. the top and and larger than yeah. life personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because many of the flying nun people are, are I would say, are quite shy and introverted. Mm-hmm. But Chris Knox has always been fabulously uh, erudite, opinionated, and you're never in doubt about what Chris thinks about something. Yeah, That's <laughs> he always let right. you know. And he was a formidable presence on the stage. He was. I remember first seeing Toy Love and standing, you know, meters from the band. They were fearsome. You know, he was scary. He was. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he was a performer. He was. You know, sometimes he'd cut himself, and he was intense. You know, so yeah, he seemed to thrive on that element. Of course, you'll be aware that Chris had a terrible stroke a few years ago, and that's really yes. You know, it's really sad that he's he's painting. He, he he can still paint. He's still very creative, but obviously he can't sing, and he can't play. It's very sad, but he continues to paint and be a creative force in his own way. He actually put out a, a couple of singles, more grunting his way through the songs, but grunting in a very impressive melodic fashion, as only Chris could do. In fact, some people thought he was more expressive grunting than many singers are singing. <laughs> Yeah, I love he, it. the resilience of some of these musicians. The fact yeah. that the Bats have just put out something recently and it's still up to their regular standards, which are yeah. high. Well, they've been going for more than Ben. I think someone said it was 38 years. I mean, Robert Scott, he's been a, a, a pillar of Flying Nun as well. And I mean, the Bats have, I think that's their 10th album, their latest album is their 10th. Yeah, like you say, it's they still sound great. They're still creative. And Robert Scott, and, I mean, when I interviewed Robert oh, t- you know, 30 years ago, he had written hundreds of songs. He is just so prolific. He, he usually has two or three bands on the go, inc- you know, including the bat. He's made solo records. He paints. Just incredibly creative person. He has not lost any of his enthusiasm. He teaches art. He runs an art gallery in Port Chalmers in Dunedin. He continues to make music. <laughs> he plays He plays in wedding bands. He, <laughs> he, he can, it's hilarious. I saw Bob actually play at a wedding with um, in a three-piece, and he played an Elvis song, and he played a, a wide repertoire, maybe a Big Star song, maybe a Velvet song, but they all sounded like Bob Scott, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Only Bob can make Elvis sound like like himself. It, it was, <laughs> he's remarkably, <laughs> remarkably idiosyncratic. You never mis- mistake the bats. You, you can recognise them as soon as you hear them. They were like that pretty much from the outset, from, you know, from when they first started playing together. They just had the sound that was the bats. 
obviously they've evolved and become better musicians and better at what they do. But fundamentally, they seem to rise out of the ground fully formed, you know, as the bats. They have that unmistakable yeah. sound that you just, it's absolutely yeah. them. And I think that's true of all the flying nun bands, you know, that they have a voice. They, they all, that's what makes them what they are. I think you wouldn't mistake them for another band. They're not anodyne. They're not bland. They are very particular and they each have their own voice. The clean sounded like the clean from the moment they started playing. You know, the enemy, they all had a particular sound and voice that mark them out and, and I think that's another reason why they've become memorable and influential you can hear the influence of the clean particularly I think in in some of uh, the you know bands like pavement guided by okay. voices I hear elements of the clean and in, in, in them absolutely I, I love how these bands have rather than just being hodgepodge bands and, and going all over the place have just devoted their careers to basically finding their sound and digging deeper and deeper into that sound and really bringing out small nuances and different textures and emphases, but still sonically remaining true to what they were up to from the beginning. Yeah, because mm. I think that, you know, the music came first, especially in Dunedin. I mean, it's not a great place to have large ambitions because you're so far from the world. You, you, the idea of making it is less tangible than it would be, say, if you're born near London or, you know, if you're born near a metropolis, you're going to have the idea that you could go there and make it. Like, you know, Bob Dylan famously going from the Midwest to New York. I mean, there's a path to follow. In New Zealand, there was no path. So just get on and make the music you want to make. I mean, there had been, there were bands, I mean, like Split Ends and, you know, they led the way, actually, Split Ends and become, in, in showing what you could do if you were good, you know, they did make it to a degree and they toured and went to England, went to the States. So there was a path, but it was a pretty difficult one. It wasn't so well established in your mind. I think if you think if you're a musician in Dunedin, I don't think you were immediately thinking about world domination. I think you were thinking about the next song. <laughs> Well, they may feel differently, but I think it's a blessing that they were cut off from some of these temptations, perhaps. We're well, better I off for that. Because, you know, there was no idea of, of keeping up with the fashion because, you know, you would just be imitating what was the latest thing. And I don't think that was ever what was really inspiring about that Dunedin scene. It was that they followed. They had obviously had influences, but then they took those influences and did something with them, something that made it their own otherwise and that's why i think it did evolve and become something that mattered that was important and also um and you know there was a lot of i guess you know a lot of countries might have this a particular smaller country like new zealand a kind of cultural cringe element we thought that great things happened elsewhere great creative artists were born in new york and london they weren't born and then Vicargal in New Zealand, you know. So there was this belief that we, we could never do anything that was substantial. And I think that continued into my generation. I don't think it has, exists at all now. We've, you know, we've got a generation that's raised on Lord, who's a mega pop star, you know. And so it's different. It's a different world now. But back then, there was still this element of cultural cringe where we thought that, well, we, you know, this wasn't where great things came from. So for my, my generation, the clean started, for me, started to change that when I realised actually what I had heard when I went overseas was better back in New Zealand than the stuff I was often hearing overseas. So I want to talk a bit about Garage because yeah. you saw that. Here's the scene and I want to document it because Flying Nun is documenting the music and yeah. I want to document these bands, get their voices on record. Talk about their records. You alluded yeah. before, Richard, to the fact that, you know, you didn't have much formal background in music, but no. you made up for it enthusiasm. And I think one of my observations just from reading the Garage Back Issues is that, yeah, that could be a real advantage because you don't have a lot of this rock critic jargon and baggage that you bring to the magazine. It's You manage to avoid that brilliantly, and it reads like well, something much different and charming. Right. Well, that's good. Um, and I take that as a compliment because it should, I mean, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I knew a little bit. I'd, I'd been raised on the NME. So I was aware that you could write in a more formal kind of pseudo intellectual fashion. But 
that was never my thing because I was simply too curious about it. And I'm not academically trained either. I never went to university. I learned to write on a newspaper. In fact, I learned about the world from a newspaper, from, from working on newspapers and from friends who were extremely knowledgeable and had amazing record collection. And I also learned about writers from friends, those friends who, who had stacks of books and introduced me to all these writers and so forth. So no one had destroyed poetry for me by making me extract a meaning from it. Mm-hmm. Or as, as Billy Collins, the poet, says, you know, tying the poem to the chair and, and getting a confession out of it. Um, <laughs> no, no one had ever done that to me. No one had ruined poetry by making me analyse it line by line and what does it mean? I simply discovered it, read it, and was amazed by it. And that's kind of what happened with the music too. I was simply excited about it. And I didn't have any grand design at all, Armin, about it. I just um, wanted to enthuse about it in a kind of cheap, portable, manageable format, you know. And that was the fanzine, which um, you could produce by typing out, you know, nine or 10 or 12, 14 pages, Xeroxing 50 copies of it and selling it. And I was amazed. We did the first issue and it was only 50 Xerox copies and it sold out straight away. So I thought, oh, okay, right. So then I went to the grand plan of getting it printed. And actually, you know, I look back at the first issue, I'm just, and there's a drawing on the back by Chris Knox, the Dunedin sound, you know, and it's got these two little figures in the corner of a large space having a, what looks like a fight. And that's how you create. <laughs> So, you know, I had a lot of support from people. Hamish Kilgour from The Clean, he did some graphics for me. And, you know, so people were enthusiastic about it from the outset. You know, people, important people like Chris and Hamish. And and I guess that must have encouraged me anyway. So we got it printed and I can't remember how many. We probably had a couple of hundred printed and that sold out. And by the sixth issue, we were printing 1,200 copies which was kind of look back and go, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I only, only sell 500 copies of my poetry books now. <laughs> you know, there's 1,200 of Garage. I guess it served a purpose, you know, it really did. It was a kind of a, you know, a, a sophisticated letter about bands that were doing great things. Not a sophisticated letter, <laughs> enthusiastic, wide-ranging letter. I'd say a, a very literate, kind of offhandedly brilliant and, and unusual letter. We had a lot of good people. You know, Bruce Russell, who went on to form the um, Expressway label and Dead Sea yes, um, yeah. band, you know, he was an amazingly helpful person when I started Garage. I mean, he, he came on board pretty early on and started writing and he, he really introduced me to a whole lot of bands. I wasn't that aware of or educated about such as scorched earth policy bruce was a huge fan of all the christchurch bands as well as the clean you know so he brought this and then there was another important guy david swift who'd written about lots of clean and toy love and the enemy and so forth for the for a newspaper and then he got a job as a sub-editor on the the nme and he started writing for garage because i knew david i met him in london when he was there and we met up a number of times and we're both big music fans. And so David just wrote for us for nothing. I mean, no one ever got paid writing for Garage. But David, and he was fabulous. He, he did a piece on um, Jesus and Mary Chain, Alex Chilton, people we would never have had access to from New Zealand, you know. And so that added a bit of luster to it and gave us a kind of international perspective almost, not quite, but, you know, it, it sort of broadened us. And, it, it, yeah, it was pretty cool to have you know, a lot, a lot of energy. And in some ways, I'm sad I didn't continue it, but I kind of life took over. I had to, I suddenly, you know, had to start earning some money and I got tired. I was doing a day job on the newspaper or on radio and then doing garage at night and on the weekend. So I think I'd gradually, after six issues, sort of burned out, which is a shame. I, I, would, I wish we'd done another couple of um, issues. I did actually start work on Garage 7, we got up to six and stopped, but I did start seven. And it was an oh, interview yeah. with Peter Jeffries of This Kind of Punishment, who who was living in Dunedin. And that was going to be the cover story. Strange. Oh, that would never, have been amazing. It never happened. But the strange thing is I interviewed Peter 30 years later and basically asked him some, some of the same questions I'd asked him. 
uh, in the eighties, <laughs> and it was really cool to actually do it and to get it published. Like I say, I've never lost the enthusiasm. I just couldn't maintain. I didn't have the time to keep going with Garage. I've interviewed a lot of fanzine editors for for the podcast, mm. and then before for my old scene. And yeah, usually people don't plan to stop. It just kind of happens. Life stuff yeah. gets in the way, and they've got half of an issue prepared with like paste ups ready, and just yeah. they <laughs> it just they can't. No, yeah, that, that's it. Sort of just petered out, and but fortunately, you see, once Garage stopped, it was picked up. Ali Oop is a fanzine magazine that followed in our path and that's really good because that um, document I mean I wrote for it as well and it, it had a lot of writers a lot of people I'm not sure how many issues Ali Oop did but look that up it's really good it's it, it documents the back part of the 80s early 90s so you get the 3ds you get a lot of bands that evolve yeah so and, you inspired that- some people to continue well, yeah, I, I guess so. They might have started without the garage, but I guess that kind of sowed the idea. And it's really cool. I really like um, Elliot. It's got lots of good stuff in it. I discovered Garage, I think, like like many other people, probably discovered Garage when it was digitized in 2011 for Flying Nun's 30th anniversary. That's how I found yeah. out about it. And do yeah. you still well, hear from people, like random people like me, discovering yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, I do, and I, you know, and I, and it's always great that it's it's had a life, much more of a life than I ever imagined that it would have, and 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 that's due to the to the music and you know the fact that it has kept evolving. That's why it's lasted because the scene we were documenting was well worth documenting, and and it was you know often ignored by the mainstream media. There were not, for example, long interviews done with the clean by newspapers and radio at that time. So in a way, Garrett was, you know, one of the few places they appeared. And I'm, and, and that's why I'm kind of regretful they weren't better interviews because, you know, that was, the, I didn't realise that actually it, it, was, it was performing a valuable service of recording what their thoughts were about those records. And, of course, if I interviewed them now, I know far more. But I guess, you know, You've got to live with the fact that you you did it and you did it as well as you hoped you could at the time. I think I'm out of questions, Richard. Is yeah. there anything you wanted to add? No, not really, except um, thank you for um, taking an interest. I'm delighted that, Garage. It, it meant something to, it's you know, it's put you onto the music. Reading it stokes my love for the music. I've I Thank you for taking the time to do this, Richard. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, no trouble. Actually, I'll read you a poem to finish, eh? and I, I thought I'd read one that um, a music-related one. And you're reading my mind. I have that question. I was talking to my wife today. I said, "Should I ask him to read a poem?" I said, "I should have <laughs> asked him before." But I have a question here on the show. Do you want to read us a poem? I wrote. Yeah. I'm worried our listeners are reading nothing but back issues of Cream and similar trash. Please read us a poem. <laughs> but I chickened out. Please read us a poem. Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll do two because one of them, they're both related to music and I've never, I've never read these before because I generally read poems that a lot of people who, are, who aren't music fans will connect with. But I'll, I'll read you um, two music poems. Eh? One's, the first one is called A Review 30 Years Later. I think it's come out of um, the experience of having many nights and where you've had a joyful time listening to music, got carried away and woken up with a terrible hangover. And so this is called A Review 30 Years Later. The night blazed behind the hill. The trees waved their arms like larrikins. All the punks had gone to bed, unconscious in their ailing bodies. The trees wild as if drugged in a mad fairy tale. That's when you started singing, if you could call it that. You were committed, and that's what lasts. You belted out your lines to the moon. I thanked you and tucked you up. Oh, how you slept. So that's the notion. I of, love um, it. That's the notion of, yeah, I'm not sure what, who that poem is about. Or I was going to say, is that a, did you have a band in mind? And no, I think individuals, the various individuals I saw who, who had made heavy weather of uh, a night <laughs> woke up with a terrible hangover but we're also it's also a joyful kind of hungover experience mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of remembering I think all those those nights of that and and the, the other poem I'll read for you Armin none of my poems are long 
which is always merciful if people don't find <laughs> them in the good. There, there was a, a pub in Dunedin which was kind of um, essential to a lot of the bands. They played there when many other pubs wouldn't um, have them. And it was called the Captain Cook. And a few years ago, it closed. <laughs> it's since reopened, but when it closed, obviously a lot of memory came back for me and and I ended up writing this poem and it's called On the Closing of the Captain Cook Tavern. Goodbye to Tiger Taylor and his tattooed muscles guarding the door. Goodbye to your sweet underage self and flight down the fire escape. Goodbye to heavenly bodies <laughs> and Chris Knox's toothy snarl. Goodbye to those fresh faces and the boy with the blue guitar. Goodbye to the worldliness of those old faces on the bar who were not so old or worldly. Goodbye to the guy in leather calling out at midnight for an Iggy Pop song. Goodbye to the mindless headbutts, the cut arms and the smashed glass faces. Goodbye to the Tuesday morning pool players and the poet rolling one between shots. Goodbye to those who never made the last round, who saw the afternoon light brilliant in a jug. Goodbye to the wild electricity of youth, our beginning hearts, and the siren at closing time that empties us onto the streets. Much thanks to Richard for his time. All six issues of Garage have been digitized. Do a Google search for Garage Fanzine Dunedin to reach the MAG's wiki site and go from there. You can also get yourself a copy of Richard's recent poetry collection, Five O'Clock Shadows, direct from Cuba Press. You also deserve a thanks for listening this far. So thanks. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or a review and tell a friend. See you again in two weeks. Happy Easter.